six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. Prepare yourself for a world of science. This is... Welcome everybody, it is another episode of the Science Knights. I'm Conley here, your host, and we got the Knights assembled, Dr. Sean Graham, Dr. Honorbon Bhattacharji, and paleontologist extraordinaire dr thomas schiller in the house and we got quite a lot of questions that they are actually going to answer they're going to talk all science today it's all science and it's all your questions and we're going to get right to it why don't we get right to it huh okay cool so uh we're going to start this show off with a very special listener uh his name's john harlow he's on the line right now calling in are you uh, at Marfa? No, I'm actually I'm here in Alpine. Oh, here in Alpine. Great. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, John, why don't you just let me know uh, what your question is, and we have all three of the Science Knights listening in right now just to uh, answer your question. Okay. Um, well, my next question is a NASA question. Um, even though the NASA has been, um, the budget's been cut uh, for quite a few years now, um, do you think that someday the, the level of coverage on TV or the cable or uh, local news will get to the, the anticipation like it once was, like with the, you know how like there was always a big anticipation for a shuttle, uh, shuttle launch or something like that, you know, and do you think it'll get back to that kind of anticipation or we kind of, kind of like it is now, we have these research projects, hey, they're, you know, they're sending the satellite, you know, the or doing something in uh, the International Space Station, or kind of like these kind of one-off projects by itself? Um, so uh, I, I think uh, there's a definite possibility uh, with this happening, because, uh, um, I mean, it's a great question, because the uh, uh, role of uh, so, uh, NASA uh, is pretty influential, uh, in shaping not just the United States' view of uh, exploration of space, but the world in general. So it, it does play a very vital role. And as for the media's and uh, the coverage, uh, one of the things I can definitely say um, that I believe moment we again start sending uh, people up to Moon or to Mars, it will again c capture the imagination of, uh, like, just not the United States, I would think the entire world, because uh, human exploration is the most, uh, uh, I would say, the most fascinating and the most exciting thing that one can um, dream of or like to see, uh, because um, as an astronomer or even, um, I would say, my fellow um, science knights, like, uh, I think uh, <laughs> most of us, and I'll say, uh, on a more serious note, like, uh, many of us doesn't necessarily become astronomers, but did become scientists because uh, of NASA's influence on us and um, and sending this idea of sending human beings into space because you, we have always, always read science fiction stories of human exploration in space and all those traveling through space. So, 
um, I think sending humans uh, in for, onto Mars or to uh, Moon to explore the new grounds, I think would definitely change uh, uh, media's coverage because um, and uh, that would because uh, media knows that's a big selling point. Unfortunately, uh, uh, they're not going to cover it, cover these things as you're talking about the research projects. But I wouldn't say these research projects are not needed because uh, to send right now, for example, to send send human beings to Mars, we would have to first set things up. So I would think if there's a definite plan for us to send human beings to Mars, you would have uh, all you would start sending satellites up to Mars with supplies where uh, which would contain um, essentials to set a base up. So I would think moment that starts happening, I would think that immediately the interest in NASA would pick up. And after one or two successful successful missions of just sending uh, materials up to space, I would think uh, uh, we would start to get the money uh, rolling in again, just like uh, I would think. So, uh, uh, but uh, I guess Sean and uh, Thomas can also talk about how they. Uh, were influenced by NASA, and uh, would they be? Uh, would NASA have the same influence um, right now for a child growing up? So, yeah, it's an interesting question. Really good, great question to our listener. I, I really like this one a lot, and it's it's interesting because you know it takes it, it's more expensive to send people into outer space. Everything gets more expensive. There's more equipment involved. It's very uh, everything's heavy. That you know all the food and all the equipment and everything to support humans, everything gets more expensive. The price tag gets more expensive. But, like Anaban was saying, I think that um, the attention that it would get would be would basically make it worth it, right? It would end up paying for itself. And I, I'm such a nerd that I love the coverage, what little coverage there is of these probes that they send. You know, when they land on Titan, a moon of Saturn, when they, the most recent probe that did a flyby of Pluto, I was I was glued to, to the screen. I couldn't believe it. It's just so cool. But I'm not your typical, you know, 10th uh, grader or something like that. I'm not even, you know, a typical adult, I suppose. So it's, it's exciting for me, but it, it takes a little bit more, I think, to get the general public involved. And I think you're right. I think they need to send people. Yeah, and, and this is, I think we've talked about this before on a previous show, about kind of the cultural uh, aspects of the, of the questions. You know, does does our culture here in the United States, uh, does it have the same drive, the same curiosity that, that the, the culture had back when we first sent people to the moon? You know? And is that what it takes to, to have it happen again? Um, I think another thing that people people need to keep their eye on, and I think people are, are the, are the private companies who are, who are starting to explore aerospace. Whether or not they'll be the first to get to Mars, I don't know. It's probably going to be NASA. Uh, but I know at least for me, um, I was kind of the first generation of kids who were told that, that we were going to be on Mars when I reached adulthood. Yeah. So I always had grand dreams of, of being on the Mars mission myself when I was a little, little uh, middle school. Yeah, it's funny. We belong to a kind of a strange generation because the three of us were inspired by NASA, yet we belonged to that generation that saw space shuttles blowing up. Right. One of my earliest memories was, you know, the one in the, the one in eighty six. I think it's the, it's, it's the anniversary today. I think or yesterday. It was just, it, 
and that like that kind of was it really it, it threw NASA off for years. Uh, no one even knew if they were going to fly another shuttle mission. They were like, "This is too risky." Um, but you know, we've we've now kind of recovered from that. We're, I think we're we're now in a generation where everybody knows what the risks are a lot better than they did, you know, back in the '60s. Like we've seen enough of these calamities that I think people know that, and 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 they're still willing to support it. And I would like to also point out that um, that even though the the in 1980s when we had the disaster, uh, we forget in 1950s and 60s we had many more people dying. The yeah. test pilots who were testing those high altitude planes yeah. they were dying. And they three were, astronauts did die. So on and, the platform. Yeah. and there were people who were dying, and there are lots of more deaths before we came. And this is just like. Uh, human beings, um, like on Contiki, setting out, like uh, you are going to find new explore. Some people are brave enough who venture out. I mean, yeah. I'm not. I'm not saying yeah. I'm a person who would be able to get on a small raft and venture out in this wide open oceans. I'm not that person. But there were people who did that, and we are here because of that. Those people. So if NASA came knocking on your door, Doctor Bhattacharjee, and said, "You got a, you got a ticket to Mars." Are you going? <laughs> I would think that's a different yes. Are you going to ask whether it's a one-way ticket or not? <laughs> um, that's okay. <laughs> that's where I think when you mention the private companies, I think you're onto something there because they're going to find they're going to find motivated people who like they're not going to have to go through a rigorous process of selection like NASA would have. These people aren't going to be athletes necessarily. They're not going to be the best fighter pilots in the world. These guys, I think their selection process is going to be how much money do you have. And they're not going to guarantee safety or success. They're just going to take people who are willing to pay $650,000 to live on a spaceship for three years and not necessarily come home. And I think that, that may be how we get there first. Uh, and that's kind of the way it was, you know, the exploration of the Western Hemisphere. It was all private enterprise, and it was very risky. And ships went down all the time, and they would get to the New World, and all 400 colonists would die. You know, it... it it, it, that's in our DNA too. That's in our nature to explore is also to put up with that kind of thing. I mean, you can just not take, I'm not talking, you can take this uh, exploration gene and take it back, way back even more when the first humans showed up in in the United oh, right. States. Yeah. Like like 15,000 years ago when there was a land bridge across, from, mm -hmm. across Bering Strait. Like, why did they come like all the way up there, like freezing? Yeah, maybe, maybe the mammoths are a little bit tastier <laughs> over there than here. In the freezing Siberian tundra <laughs> up there, like little. Yeah, I don't. I don't think there there necessarily has to be any sort of drive other than just the seeking new places. Yeah. And, and I'm certain they they could find plenty of volunteers, and you know, I kind of. It's funny when I was a kid, like you were talking about Thomas. I wanted to be that, you know, oh, man, if I could be an astronaut and explore Mars, you know, go fossil hunting on Mars. Now I don't want to go. I don't want to go at all. I would be very curious about who went, and I'd want to follow them, and I'd be rooting for them. But you couldn't pay me enough to get on that ship. I like the Earth just I, fine. I mean, I'm pretty sure having a kid also changes. Having a kid is a big thing. Yes. But still, I like, I've really fallen in love with planet Earth. Yeah, as, as I said, like, I wouldn't, uh, as you said, do you, would somebody give you a ticket? Yes, of course, I would, like, at yeah. this point, I would say yes, but, uh, yeah, so I think uh, sending human beings up even to moon, I think, would be a great idea, setting up a base, yeah. like a permanent base up in moon, which could, like, have, like, just like we have on our space yeah. station, 
where human beings go and come back would yeah. be a great. They make, yeah. they make a good point about it because when when I first heard about like various administrations in the past have talked about getting NASA kind of up and going again, they always talked about, oh, we'll go to the moon first again. We'll go back to the moon. And I've always thought, well, that doesn't, no, you know, we've been there and there's nothing there. But then they've made a good case for it now. They're like, there's water ice on the moon. There's stuff that you can make fuels from. I mean, they could probably find some pretty awesome rare earth minerals to make it worthwhile, like in terms of cost. So uh, actually, it makes a lot of sense now to go back to the moon first, set up a base, get some ice, get some fuels, get the hydrogen out of the ice to fuel the rocket. I mean, it it, it didn't make sense to me at first. Yeah. And, well, you know what? That kind of transitions into our next question, but we're going to get to that after the break. We have some time left to expand on John's question. So go ahead. Well, I was I was just going to say that you know the three of us were, were scientists and we kind of think of it from a scientific perspective. But um, if you look if you look back in history when we first landed on the moon, what that did for us as a country, just just our our, our society and national pride, yeah. you know, and not just national pride, but but kind of a, a pride in our species. Being that was able kind to, of to, to me that was, and I think everyone kind of recognizes that it wasn't uh, nobody. I mean. We got there, but the whole world was rooting for us. I mean, that, it was it was a it was an achievement of the world. It really was. Yeah, and we we look at our kind of our current our current climate um, in terms of, of division between groups of people in our country, and uh, it's like something like that would, would do great things. I think it just it brings people together under one cause, one great achievement, and even if it's landing on the moon again. To have a whole generation that gets to witness that again, mm-hmm. and we accomplish this, and it's and if it is leading us to ultimately going to Mars, it's even better. Yeah, I think that's the way to sell it too. You don't, we're not going back to the moon to collect, uh, you know, rare earth minerals to come back to build more microchips, which you know, private enterprise it might be the way they do it, but no, it's this is just a stepping stone to get to Mars. And uh, I was going to say, like one great thing about NASA, even though it's completely. Um, it's uh, where uh, Americans are the who work on it, and it's funded by Americans and everything. Like it's very interesting when I was growing up, like and talking from my um, some of the, my friends. NASA has this appeal to entire world where you feel like NASA just, uh, you know, spiritually does not is not just the United States. It's like as if like it is for the entire world. Like whatever NASA does, it is for the entire world and not yeah. just for the United States. Yeah. So when you send somebody up to that was basically entire human beings as a species evolving uh, from evolving from just being on earth to somewhere else so i would think that's one point like more emotional kind of thing about nasa and the second thing that i would like to say point out about having a moon base is so is good because uh, moon is uh, launching things from moon is way easier than launching yeah. things from earth yeah. so there is um, you, uh, its gravity is um, much slower back uh, so you can e- much less fuel will be needed to just send stuff up from there. So and uh, Moon has a lot of tunnels, and where you can be- immediately you get shielded from uh, solar radiation. Wait, and, wait, it's got tunnels. Well, how do we know that? Oh, we already did the radar measurements, <laughs> and we have sent. And so we are already know there are tunnels up. It's geology. We know it because of the <laughs> okay. Yeah, so yeah, there good. you go. So, so these aren't. Uh, if you're picturing um, tunnels that people made or that some critter made, these are 
like some sort of volcanic uh, yeah yeah something tube, like a, a lava tube, tube lava kind of tube thing? kind okay. of thing uh so some of the lava tubes might be sealed might have that uh, would be convenient wouldn't it so you could yeah burrow basically get, so basically get out of all that harmful radiation yeah. you don't even need to build like a dome type shelter kind of yeah. thing you can just go there yeah. seal it wouldn't up wouldn't that be funny like if we end up going on the moon and colonizing it and then we become cavemen <laughs> Right, it'd be, it'd be a hell of a lot cheaper than I mean, building some big structure. I mean, if somebody, uh, I mean, for example, like I am, I can pretty much. If you are growing up in Moon, right, <laughs> and if you have spent your entire life in Moon, uh, you won't need won't need to exert so much uh, uh, force, and your muscles will not need to be so as strong as they are, or your bones don't need to be as strong as they are on Earth because Earth has atmosphere. And Mar- uh, Moon doesn't, so uh, physiologically you're going to have certain changes. And I assume if you keep on living over and over again, uh, you will have a totally different species of human. Eventually, yeah. Eventually. Yeah. And who will actually most probably need specialized suits when they come to Earth. Just to <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> because it would act as if, like on Earth, it would, uh, uh, to them, it would be like as if you're diving deep in the seas like you need really pressurized seats uh suits right Right, right, right. Uh, if you have the deep sea diving to prevent the pressure from collapsing on them so yeah Uh so that's what would we call these people moon men moonies moonies lunars (laughs) (laughs) moon people i guess yeah (laughs) and we can say they have the moonshine in them show on them (laughs) Uh, so, uh, John, did you have any other question? Uh, did you have anything other to uh, like ask us? I hope oh, that no, that was uh, no, that that was that was it. That was just my uh, my qu- original question. Um, yeah, was, I, thank you for the uh, for the answers. It was very important. Thank you for being our very first caller, John. You're going yeah, down I, in I, science I like nights in the morning well. history. <laughs> thank you so much for the call, uh, and thank you for listening to us. Yeah, I, I I try to catch as much as I can. Uh, but yeah, I've been in astronomy, you know, with science and for years and years. I mean, even even my older sister back east, uh, she had to do the the famous uh, planet project. You know, where you kind of each planet you kind of hang in with a little mobile system. You know. Um, uh, are you talking about like a like a scales kind of thing where where you have the scales of like how big the planets are and how distances are? Uh, yeah, like kind of like a little, like for like a science project, like your basic science project. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah, so yeah, yeah. Make little snow globes and all that. And make little, yeah, yeah. Know, put paper mache and put it together. And makes your planets. It's cool. Yeah, yes. yeah. And then like yellow it, was the sun. It was a stick. <laughs> Is that not no? Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, Thanks again for John, calling, John. Th- man. Thank you again very much for calling, loyal listener. John Harlow, thank you so much. And have a good day. You have a great day. All right. So we're going to take our commercial break right now. And uh, we're going to get back with another question that kind of leads into what John's question was. Outstanding. Which is really, what formed the moon? And did the meteor that kind of ended the Ice Age, the Snowball Earth, uh, affect the moon as we know it right now? So we will expand on this. After a quick commercial break. The moon. <laughs> the moon. All right, and we are back with the Science Nights. We want to thank John Harlow for his very, very well-versed question. Great question. Yeah, it's a great question. And we have another good question on the way. This is uh, from Tom Razor. Uh, 
my dad actually asked this question. <laughs> but we have a lot from other listeners, too. But this actually goes perfectly with John Harlow's question. He was asking about the uh, snowball earth hypothesis. And also, uh, what exactly is made from the moon? Is it um, made from the earth? Or is, how is the moon? What is the actually, moon? Is yeah, the what question? is the moon? Yeah, what, where right? the, yeah. what is the moon? So I, I'm sure it? you can expand <laughs> on this. That's an easy one. Yeah, yeah, that's I love that, and I, you know I don't know much about it, but Anand, why don't you get us started on that one? Oh, started about like what is the yeah, moon? Yeah, what's the moon? Oh, okay. Here's maybe we'll do it this way. Uh, there's kind of competing hypotheses about what the moon could be, and that's a good thing for the listeners to kind of uh, our listeners to know that science isn't us just telling you what the way it is, but often there are kind of two competing hypotheses or two like models for how the uh, moon was formed, right? Yes. I mean, one of the easiest things is for us to visualize is when Earth was forming, it was similarly big enough another structure, like a rock or something that was going around, and which essentially became the moon, and then there was a, a pretty So two, two separate balls of uh, kind of uh, like molten stuff, and they just happened to be next to each other. And Earth being the, uh, uh, the heavier one kept the moon orbit basically and the moon started going around it and it's two different things so uh, one of the, the other possibility uh, other possibility is more dramatic there. one right? more dramatic one and uh, it's dramatic one but it has its own kind of like you know um, own uh, uh, merits to it yeah. that's what I was looking to it the idea uh, the idea was uh, as the earth was forming 4.5 billion years ago uh, it was still not earth as we know it it's still proto-earth See, uh, there was this huge object called Thea which collided with Earth, and a part of Earth uh, got ejected out, and part of Thea got ejected, broken up, and mixed with that part of Earth that got ejected out and formed the Moon, and part of Thea got left behind on Earth, and as you know, we became Earth. So this is called the giant impact theory for formation of Earth. So there is that uh, huge. There is that theory, and so those those two competing hypotheses uh, have kind of you, you end up with two. Um, you know, there's completely different data you could get to support one or the other. Uh, I mean, one of the, the the easiest one is like the first one is the easiest one when normally how you see like planets formation happens, you have a satellite formation happening like just around it. It's like normal what you would have like. How planets form? We, we talked about in an older, uh, like an uh, like older episode where we talked about planet formation. Was basically in terms uh, of like in terms of what kind of how would you test it? We've had we've gone to the moon. We picked up rocks in the moon, and we can analyze them. So, so what would the prediction be if it, if it's just a ball that's been hovering around the Earth, never no collision? What should that material be? Versus if it was a collision, what should that material be? So that's what it boils down to. Yeah, right? basically that's what it boils down to. But Unfortunately, what we can, um, the problem is, like, you have to remember, like, if there is, like, the, what's happening as you go away from the sun, the temperature starts dropping, right? Depending on, you know, if you're really close to the sun, you're going to be hot. Mm -hmm. So, everything's going to be molten. It doesn't matter what it is. So, the temperature's going to be molten. As you start getting, going away, the temperature starts dropping. So at different temperatures, different things start solidifying. 
Yep. Right? Because we all know that. So at a certain temperature range for our Earth when it started forming, certain materials would be cooling down. So you would have a lot of that, those materials at that point. Mm -hmm. Right? So basically using that, you can already assume that both the moon and Earth, if they were forming at the same positions, you they would essentially have similar materials. Yeah. So obviously that gives us immediately... So it's very hard for us to discount both the theories. Of the yeah, I was going to say, like... Um, we, so I kind of I set it up for the the listener to kind of hear like how we would try to figure this out. So and so and we've collected rocks. And one of the things I know already about the rocks that we've collected from the moon is that they're really old. They're they're as old as a lot of the you know asteroids that hit the Earth. And those all happen to be around the same age, around the, the what we assume is the time that the, the, know, the, the solar Earth, system like, formed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you can you can hardly find those kind of sort of old rocks on Earth because they've been melted and reformed and they you know they've got different dates. But the the raw material out in the solar system super old four point five four point six yeah. billion years. And so if you find the rocks on the moon that are that old, then that means they're as old as the solar system, which doesn't help you distinguish whether or not it was because of an impact or not. Exactly. But what we have, what are the first of all. Uh, both moon and Earth, they are spinning pretty much in the same orientation. Mm. Like they are spinning in the same uh, plane, yeah. kind of thing. The orientation they are spinning. So that's one of the things. Although the moon's stuck and it's not, you know, um, rotating. Right? No, moon is rotating. It's just a. Uh, it's rotating in the same. No, it takes it takes uh, moon takes twenty eight days to go around the Earth once, mm -hmm. and it takes the same time for it to rotate once. So one lunar day, so a day on moon is going to equal to its one year, a lunar year. Mm. A lunar year is 28 days and a lunar day is 28 days. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, but why do we, all, why do we, why do we only see one face? Oh, so what is side? this called? Something called the tidal locking? It's yeah, when you, that's what I was talking about. So this is called a synchronous rotation. Yeah. So when the, your time it takes to rotate is equal to time that you take to revolve the full Yeah, path. okay, so, so it just seems to us, us like, okay. So we always see the same space. Yeah. And it appears to us as if the moon And that is means it's super synchronized. Yeah, with Earth. Yeah, yeah. And this is something which will happen to Earth if Earth exists around 5 billion years from now. This is going to happen to Venus. Mm -hmm. And already Mars and Venus are pretty, very close to getting aligned to um, uh, the suns. Uh, sorry, no, so things are very, they're closer to sun, uh, their time it takes for them to go around the sun once is going to become equal to one day on Venus or Mercury. So, um, What about the, the material that they did collect on the moon? A lot of it is um, geologically. Um, yeah, Thomas, you, you want to chime in here? It's yeah, a lot so, of like the stuff that's found really deep in the Earth? Um, well, not necessarily really deep. So the, the, the moon, at least the, the outer part of the moon, is, is basalt. Mm -hmm. Basalt is a rock that we can see around here in West Texas. Um, it's a really dense rock that's made up of iron-bearing minerals, um, and it's the first rock that would have formed on the early Earth. So way back in the, the Hadean, which is the, the period of Earth's history where it was basically an inhospitable molten blob, basically, um, the first rocks that started to form at those high temperatures are the rocks that formed outside of the, of the Earth. 
Um, which is which is really neat to imagine because uh, you know today we have basically two kind of major groups of rocks, compositionally speaking, that make up our crust here on Earth. We have, we have uh, the basalts, mafic rocks, as they're called in compositional terms, that make up the oceanic crust, so the stuff that's beneath the ocean, and the continental crust, which is mostly granitic rocks. So it's made up of, of silica-bearing uh, minerals that have a lot of silica. In the earliest stages of Earth, what we see on the Moon is it's entirely basalt. It's entirely mafic. So these early formed minerals, these iron-bearing minerals, formed at very high temperatures. And they would have formed our original uh, continental bodies. And it's through plate tectonics, the, the earliest movement of the, 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 the lithosphere, that a mixing and isolation of these of these less dense silica-bearing minerals that eventually led us to our continental crust. That didn't happen on the moon. The moon is covered in, in basaltic lava flows. We were talking about the, the tunnels. Those are lava tubes that we can see sometimes collapsed on the surface. Mm. Uh, so, uh, compositionally speaking, there are similarities there. And uh, another thing, we, uh, the, one of the things they talk about if moon and Form as two separate bodies, moon would have a bigger iron core. Mm -hmm. So, which it does, the moon has a very small uh, mm -hmm. iron core, which means what they're saying is during the impact, this uh, object here, when they collided, had an iron core and deposited most of the iron core onto the earth and yeah. it sank inside. So, earth in itself has a bigger iron core compared to any other planet. Our nickel core, so our much greater one, which gives uh, us our uh, magnetic field. Ma yeah, that's uh, and then that's moon, point. on the other hand, compared. To Imagine that like. if this impact gave us the the kind of iron that we needed to have this magnetic field, which makes life on Earth possible. That, how, how cool is that? What was the name of this hypothetical? Athea. Uh, Thea. Thea. Isn't there one called that that's out in the? Have I heard that before? What does that mean? You know what I mean? I mean, is Thea like is just a goddess or yeah, something like that. Greek goddess, basically. I think it's something to do with um, Pluto. I would believe. <laughs> I'm just yeah. anyway. It just sounds like it almost sounds like it could be like a real like a planet or a moon or something like that because it's got one of those cool Greek names. Oh, so it's, uh, Thea is a Greek titan, one of those, oh, uh, one of and uh, she was the mother of uh, Selene, who which is an uh, old name, Greek name for moon. Oh, cool. So yeah. okay. So I just looked it up. Very <laughs> good. Yeah. Well, thanks for telling it. Yeah. So um, and um, so we have that. That's Another, cool. I like that yeah. evidence that uh, the, the the moon overall is lighter than it should be. It doesn't have this uh, like the iron uh, kind of iron core cool. that it would have if it if it had just kind of cooled and spun in place. Like uh, and Earth as a comparative yeah. to other Mars and Mercury and everything, it has a much bigger yeah, so iron it's core. Kind of asymmetrical. Kind of that between way. the two of them. Uh, but the problem with that is moon has water and the trapped in there. So, um, but the question now comes in like such an impact would not allow the water to exist in the back of the south flow, right? I, if I'm not mistaken, like, would moon have a, would it just evaporate on, on impact yeah, or something it, like that? Such a small body. Yes, uh, that's what one of the things are. So, and also I think. Um, so those are there are a couple of issues. It doesn't surely you could have some, some pockets of water that would would survive somewhere and maybe could still get to the surface somehow. I could imagine that. Yeah. Well, what if it happened when the Earth actually already had oceans? If uh, I think would that's it become way too remolten? 
No. No? no this would have been before the Rainy Ocean. Ocean's okay. Way. Long time ago, then. Way, way before. Um, yeah. the, the Earth wasn't a, a very nice place for the first few million, million years that Okay, so I think we look we, like more covered uh, where the moon possibly, but yeah. So what we can what, now we're talking about the early Earth. We can kind of shift to the other part of this question, which is involving snowball Earth, which is uh, a hypothesis out there. And Thomas, you know this more than I do. What, yep. What's that all about? Well, basically, um, throughout Earth's history, we've had we've had major glacial episodes where, where we have much more continental ice extends towards the, the, the lower latitude. Um, Snowball Earth basically says that um, I think 650 million years ago, something like that, um, <clears throat> the Earth was covered in, in ice. Now, the reason we're calling this a hypothesis is because um, there, there is a lot of debate on whether or not uh, Snowball Earth actually happened and whether or not it was the entire Earth covered in ice. Uh, it's not very realistic that the Ice extended down to the equator, basically. So uh, let's bring it back: six hundred million years, six fifty million years. Mm-hmm. I think like that's that. that's one hundred fifty million years before the Cambrian explosion. Yeah. So this is when there would have been life on Earth, but it would mostly have been single-cell yeah, organisms. Exactly. That's yeah. what I was getting to. Yeah. So uh, for them to survive, let's say uh, you will say unicellular orga- organisms to survive, uh, would they need sunlight? So because the I'm, photosynthesis would have been going on would have been going on for a couple of billion years. No, I'm, yeah, but yeah. Uh, no, I'm sorry, I'm just, just a single cell yeah. like cyanobacteria. No, because my question is leading on, I'm interrupting here because if it's a snowball Earth, oh, so if, 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 if there was covered, ice over all the oceans, could you still have photosynthesis? Yes, not like it is now, but yes, um, you could have had like so. There's there are photosynthetic microorganisms that can live on ice. And they'll, they'll give the ice like a pink appearance or even a green appearance. Like you can find it um, in Antarctica. So you can you can have microorganisms, and they could have done it, but it, you don't base a whole ecosystem on that. Yeah. And, you and, you're, and you're also, you have, also have to consider this is 650 million years ago. Um, geologically speaking, we're just a short time before things really explode. And we get huge numbers of complex multicellular organisms Emerging on Earth, so to to think that that um, that the entire Earth was covered in ice and that, that some single-celled organisms managed to stick it out, uh, to me, doesn't seem too reasonable. Um, we have, of course, have other catastrophic events. We've talked about mass extinctions in, in a few of our other shows, but something like that to have prolonged coverage of ice, just uh, to me, seems like it'd be too devastating to. I think, like, as long as there were thermal vents down in the bottom of the ocean, that kind of thing, extremophiles, there's all, I think, like, you can do whatever you want to this planet, barring having the sun blow up and just completely take it out, and microorganisms are going to survive it. That's my thing. But before, what's the evidence for this snowball? Why do they even, why why is that even a hypothesis? So, um, when we we look at glacial periods in Earth's history, we have a number of things that we we find associated with them, um, we have we have geologic evidence, uh, where glaciers actually leave physical evidence on on the surface of the earth. They create scars, linear scars. Um, the the deposits that glaciers deposit as they're retreating are unique, they're different from any other environment um, in terms of their, their, um, their uh, 
structure, the composition, well, not the composition, but the, the uh, texture. Um, so we have that, that evidence. And what, what that leads us to is we find evidence of that at lower latitudes, so approaching the, the tropics, approaching the equator. What they think was the tropics back 650 million yeah. years ago. Yeah. And, and that's probably where the rub is, right? Yeah. So they <laughs> think that they found some you know glacial scarring of some kind, some tillites or something like that. Yeah. That are that they think were at the equator 650 million years ago, but if they're wrong, then it was just an ordinary ice age. Yeah. So, uh, if I'm not mistaken, when I was like there, I think one of the things I read about is like there used to. I think this might be the snowballs where he's like they used to have glaciers in like the uh, Arabian Desert is one of those mm-hmm. things. Is like one of the evidences is point towards. Yeah. So they should have a corresponding uh, evidence. Uh, of uh, uh, massive glaci- uh, glaciation in um, sub-Saharan, if that's the case, do they have that in sub-Saharan? They do, yeah. Okay, mm. so um, they have that. Okay. Yeah, and and you know another thing to keep in mind. And this is a little bit off topic, but um, you know we've talked about about plate tectonics. I mm-hmm. think we had a whole show about plate yeah. tectonics, and we've seen this sort of evidence before, um, much later at the end of the Permian, so two hundred fifty-one million years. Um, and this is one of the earliest pieces of evidence that was actually used um, in what was then called continental drift hypothesis, but eventually gave us plate tectonics, was the presence of all this, this evidence of glaciers um, crossing the equator mm-hmm. in, uh, around the tropics. just didn't make any sense. So um, in that case, what it told us was that the, the continents are a different place. were in yeah. a different place. Yeah. All the all this talk about rocks probably got you all very excited about seeing lots of different kinds of rocks. If you want to see a lot of different kinds of rocks, go to the geological trail at the Chihuahuan Desert Research Institute. You will see all different kinds of rocks, rocks, and they're all they got the dates and everything you can see. Just take your family out to CDRI and check that place out. They support research locally. They do incredible things. It's a great place to hike. Get yourself the the annual. Uh, you know, uh, membership that you can get is super cheap, and you can go there anytime you want. So check it out, everybody. And I would like to point out before we end the show, the snowball herb is uh, this hypothesis. Uh, oh, oh, we're yeah. coming back. We got yeah. plenty of time okay. to talk. Yeah. So we, got, we can come yeah. back and talk about that. Yeah, yeah, we got, we got, yeah, we can unpack this a little bit further. Okay. Let's go to a break, and we'll come right back. Hello, West Texas. We are all back, all the science nights. So we were talking before the break. We were talking about uh, Snowball Earth, so which, according to Thomas, didn't really happen at all. Completely <laughs> <laughs> illogical. Well, well, I, don't no, no, no. I don't buy it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think no, the Earth was completely yeah. covered in ice. But, uh, but uh, a substantial portion of it was covered in ice. So let's say a substantial por- portion of Earth was covered in ice. How would it that be different from a normal ice age? Uh, would it be like? Is it like a? more severe ice age would you say or it like more lasted longer than a normal ice age yeah would that be the case what's a normal ice age? yeah, yeah exactly. what's a normal ice age yeah there there have been several throughout earth's history so it's kind of hard to say what a normal ice age is and what, what one isn't but um typically when people think of of ice ages they think of the the pleistocene the last great ice age which started two and a half million years ago <coughs> sorry um yeah, of course, happening much, much later than, than Snowball Earth, um, during a time when the continents were all in their current position they are today. There were people around. There were people around, mammals, 
mammals you mean oh two and a half million yeah i would say like yeah. 250,000 years ago Are you and sure? uh, that was the... that was during the last ice age oh that's, you, remember okay, how that's, that's how uh, okay, Native yes, Americans got yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sea level was lower yeah yes, so we were yeah. around yeah. in fact a lot of our evolution could have been kind of sculpted by the fact that there were big glaciers yeah, yeah i forget uh climates yeah. uh the, the global warming mm-hmm. people kind of yeah, deny it's important, it, so it's that, important yeah. to realize that we've had this uh kind of the pleistocene period is like two million years right something like that yeah the length of the and there were age. multiple uh what they call glacials and interglacials yeah. where they were the, the ice the sheets moved really far south and were really thick up in northern hemisphere mm-hmm. and then they would retreat back yeah. and they would move back and forth and they did that you know Six seven times. Yeah, and they ha- it happens on a smaller scale. We have glacial maxima, mm-hmm. glacial minima. Yeah, the um, fact that we still periods. have there's still continental glaciers, huge ones in Antarctica, and a huge continental glacier in Greenland, and there well there was up until pretty recently steady ice pack over the Arctic Ocean. I mean we're kind of still in an ice age in a way. It's no- nothing like it was ten thousand years ago when the glaciers were a thousand two thousand foot uh, thick. In Wisconsin, mm-hmm. you know that's that's extreme, but you know we we still kind of have this ice around. There were times in Earth history when it was completely gone, where the climate, you know, up in Alaska, right in the Cretaceous, mm-hmm. which you know um, was quite warm, even though it was really in Alaska was pretty close to the pole even then. In Australia, too. And, yeah. and I was just like to point out before before we go back into this thing is that. That ice age and people having warmer climates, you have to understand that warming took hundreds of thousands yeah. and millions of years. And you're going to hear that from people who, are, who, who kind of dismiss, yes. d- dismiss climate change because, like, oh, the climate's always changing. Yeah. It's like, well, <laughs> this is happening yes. over a period of like centuries versus uh, tens of thousands of, of years. years. So and hundreds if, you, of thousands if you're willing, if you're comfortable with that kind of change happening that quick, so quick. Great. Yeah. But I'm not. Not a century. I mean, not even a full century. Within like 50, 60 years, I would yeah, say. Yeah, that's what we're talking yeah. about. Yeah. So it's we it's, a, different, it's a difference of scale. How fast things are changing. Yes. Yeah, Sean, Sean mentioned something that, that uh, to kind of put this in perspective to our listeners, um, if you're familiar with the, the geography of, of the northern part of our country in, in, in North America, um, and you can imagine a map. We have the Great Lakes um, and Hudson Bay in, in Canada. Those are all glacial features. Um, and they basically represent kind of the southern extent of glaciers that, that formed uh, during the last ice age. Um, Hudson Bay itself um, is this big depression in the earth that was generated by such a thick piece of ice, such a thick glacier um, overlying the, the crust that it caused the crust to deform, to sink down beneath it. And that's why we have Hudson Bay today and all the Great Lakes uh, to the south of that, and one of the uh, I I had the opportunity. I'm not I'm I'm from Texas, but uh, we don't talk about glaciers too often in Texas geology. But I had the opportunity to 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 fly over uh, the Great Lakes region, and in addition to these glacial lakes, one of the, the features we were talking about before these big scars that are generated by by glaciers growing and retreating, you see them on the landscape from an airplane, kind of kind of indicating how recently that that happened. So you see these big linear scars, and you see these giant out-of-place boulders, too. Mm-hmm. I love those great glacial erratics. Right? Yeah, That's glacial like, erratics. They'll be, like, in some neighborhood in, in, like, Minnesota or something like that, and they'll build the street around it because it's in the middle. It's like a, it's like a two-story rock that doesn't belong anywhere near where it is. 
and they'll have to build a school like you know and it'll have like this bent part because they have to build you can't move it yeah. and and the rock is from quebec yeah and it got miles dropped there miles away. by a, a big glacier it's great i love glacial erratics i think they're the coolest things so, ever which, which is very interesting like i was going to ask uh thomas's question is like <laughs> so uh when i'm when i'm flying back from home to united states or other way around sometimes when you're going over caspian sea and all those areas mm-hmm. right there have glacier, uh, the glaciers there too mm-hmm. right with the and you kind of see have a feature of those like this big stars even from up in the sky the land is kind of has a weird are you talking about those kind of shapes that you can see even from top like I'd have to I'd have to see an okay, area for I could say so yeah, and so, so the Pleistocene glaciation was uh, last two million years or so. Uh, sometimes a lot of ice uh, coming back and forth. Right now we're definitely in an interglacial where the ice is nowhere near as extensive as it was. It's also important to note uh, that all of all of our estimates of the climate suggest that at the end of that last ice age, um, with, you know, last glaciation, the temperature uh, globally kind of stayed pretty still. For about ten thousand years, okay. and, and lately it's yes. not staying still. Um, so, but this wasn't the only ice age. So, what no. what, what are some other oh, yeah. kind of Hall of Fame ice ages from the geological record? Oh, wait, the Permian were, one is a cool yeah. One the Permian that. was a good one. The the one that people point to for Snowball Earth. There have been some some I wouldn't call them minor ones in the Paleozoic, um, and then uh, we had a small ice age ten thousand years ago. Um, um, so we've we've had multiple ice ages and, and we see evidence of those in the in the rock record. Now, um, since we're on the topic of, of geology and, and I mentioned before one point of evidence, we talked about kind of the physical evidence that the glaciers leave behind. Um, I was just talking about this in lecture today in my historical geology class. Um, the importance of, of, of glacial and interglacial periods where ice is either forming or, or melting. It has a lot to do with the chemistry of the oceans, but also the, the exchange of heat in the oceans and the circulation in the ocean. So um, these ice ages that occur, these periods of glaciation, can affect the biology. They can affect the, the chemistry of the ocean and the exchange of heat. So when you have a period of time where, where the Earth's temperatures are elevated and there's cold water that's being contributed to the oceans from melting, melting glaciers, it causes circulation of the oceans, deep circulation. So you have um, all this cold water down in the, in the bottom of the ocean that's being circulated up that's bringing with it nutrients. oxygen and nutrients, yeah, and it's essentially ones. oxygenating the oceans. So this leads to proliferation of, of, of algae and, and, and plankton and stuff like that, photosynthetic organisms. So it has a global effect. In terms of, of biology and yeah. and it affects the chemistry. Of the one ocean. one uh, example of that where the the ocean temperature can cause a, a local amazing effect. Uh, the cold water current that goes along the side of Peru causes this upwelling, this nutrient enrichment, which supports these massive fisheries of like anchovies and enormous amounts of seabirds feed on those fish uh, and sea mammals. And every 10 years or so, that current gets shut down and, and it becomes a warm water current from the equator and replaces that cold water current. And that's, that's El Nino. Just that one local thing kicks off this kind of um, chain of events that changes global climate. So when you have that happening, imagine that's just one little place on Earth where the cold water current becomes a warm water current and that's kind of a natural event. 
what happens if all of the ice sheets melt and you get all that cold water going everywhere and, uh, all at once? Yeah. I was just going to say, not just thinking of that, I was going to say, how long does these ice age typically would last for, like, Best seen one is what, like, I think now, for two and a half million couple, years. Yeah, a couple million years. So, you should, usually they should last for a couple of million years, right? It. Or there's no fixed time scale. There's no fixed time scale. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's really hard. It would be hard to estimate, like, when the Permian one happened, that the Permian is like 300, what, how many? 251 million. Years? 250? Okay. Imagine how hard it would be to try to reconstruct the glacial episodes 250 million years ago when we we have a hard enough time trying to find out what the uh, glacial periods were for the last one. Right? Yeah, and to some degree, it, it, it relates to Milankovitch cycles yeah. and stuff like that, but we could talk about that on a later episode. But if we kind of bring this full circle with Snowball Earth, um, um, like Snowball Earth is a good example of, of, a, of a glacial period or a cold period that would have been prolonged because all of the ice on the surface of the Earth would have reflected a lot of the sun's energy through albedo. Exactly. Yeah. So, without the 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 kind of elements that would that would reduce the, the the growth of the ice, and with all of this energy being reflected off the surface, that allowed prolonged growth and, and uh, uh, sustaining of the of the ice during that period. So, um, Earth, you know, conditions change. The present always isn't always the key to the past. You know, we look at the Earth's history, and we have continents that have moved throughout time. We have different conditions. We have different life on Earth. So, a really great place to ponder that. Chihuahuan Desert Research Institute. There you go. You got to get up there. It's right off of uh, State Road 118, just southeast of Fort Davis. And if you go and you mention that you heard about CDRI from the Science Nights, you can get a discount to get in there for a lot cheaper than you would otherwise. So check out the CDRI. Ask them about glaciers and where they keep them. And, and, and do that for us, too. They're then, in the freezer. Tell us what their face looked like <laughs> and, uh, when you asked them that. And, uh, like we should also thank the people who send us the questions. So. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot for I these questions. I think this is going to be two or three episodes. We had a lot of fun with the Snowball Earth questions. So keep sending more us a question. Questions. More questions. Yeah, more yes. questions. We'll answer your questions. Thanks a lot, guys. We'll see you next time on the Science Nights. Thanks for listening to this episode of Science Nights in the Morning. Be sure and follow us on Patreon for exclusive gear and uncut episodes. Check out the latest science articles on our Facebook page and subscribe to us on YouTube and your favorite podcast listening app. You can also listen every Saturday at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time at BigBenRadio.com. And if you got a question, we'll join the discussion. Hit the hotline at 432-217-1983 and record your message. We couldn't do this without you, and thank you so much for listening each and every week. That's Science Nights in the Morning with a K, and we'll see you next time.